the title of our thoughts this morning is who makes the difference now that it can be a question like it's stated there who makes the difference or it can be a statement who makes the difference over against what I love this time of year it's a it's a wonderful time not just because it's spring and the crocuses and the daffodils are coming up and all that but because we're approaching Easter we're, we're approaching Resurrection Day, which, which is the key time in the church calendar year when we, when we think most specifically about who Jesus was and what he came to do and all of that. So next weekend will be Palm Sunday following by, by Resurrection Day, by Easter Sunday. And the, the idea of, of how, this, how this comes to be is that you say, well, God's got this big plan and here's how it's working out. But Jesus has spent 33 years uh, on the planet in terms of what the gospel story tells about him. And he comes to these last two weeks and all kinds of things happen. One of my interesting memories of Easter when I was a young pastor, I started pastoring when I was 24 years old. And nobody wants a 24-year-old senior pastor unless you're a college kid. And so we were at a university church with about I don't know, 15 or 20 college kids initially, and then it grew over time. But I remember we had these four little kids. Now, those four little kids are now all in their 40s. But when they were small, I, I came by the kitchen one day, and Ruth was in there, and she was coloring Easter eggs with the kids. She was, and I said, Ruth, what are you doing in there? She said, oh, I'm putting color on these eggs. And I was 24, and I had my theological framework pretty well down, and I said, well, you can't do that. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's an ancient Egyptian fertility rite, you know, the whole... She said, oh, I, I don't know about that. We're just putting color on the eggs here, and we're just... And we're going to go hide them outside in the bushes. And then I said, no, no, it's a cultic thing. Goddess Osiris. She said, I don't know. And she, she said, our kids know the difference between Jesus and the Easter Bunny, okay? And she said, and my parents and my grandparents did this with us. It was great fun. You just go find the eggs. And are you saying that my parents and my grandparents are pagans? Is that what? And I'm saying, no, 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 no. You don't want to, you don't want to go there with the in-laws. But the point is, the point is that the whole thought of Resurrection Day, the whole thought of why Jesus came to do what he did is captured in this season of the year in a way that it otherwise isn't. It's about hope and transformed lives. I think Jesus is the answer or the response to a statement made in Genesis. Genesis 2.18 in the creation account, God's created Adam and he says this, it is not good that the man should be alone and so Eve is created. I think that's more than a marital statement. I think it's a generic statement. I think it's interesting that it doesn't say what would be great is, is if we're all together. But that's not what it says. What it says is, it is not good for man, both flavors, male and female, to be alone. Because if I say to a crowd of folks, if I say, how many of you know what it really feels like to be together? You know, maybe half the crowd or two-thirds. But if I say, how many know what it feels like to be alone? 100%. We raise our hands because that's our default. We know what it feels like to be alone or feel lonely because that's where we naturally go when we're struggling or whatever it, it is. And when you're a kid, we, we use alone as discipline. Okay, you got out of line there, there's a timeout. Go over there, you know, or go in the other room or 
or when you're in school, if you do stuff that's inappropriate, they suspend you, they take you away from the group and send you home. Or if you're in regular society and you do something really bad, they send us to prison. And if we do something really bad in prison, where do they put you? Solitary. Yeah, we all know. That alone's not good. So, but Jesus is a response to that because this is a who book. This isn't just about what. This is about who. Listen to some of these statements early on in the Old Testament. God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Or Moses talking to God when they're in the, in the wilderness, and he says, if your, presence, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. Or Jesus shows up, and they says, and, you should, and the Scripture says, and you shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. Or John, the gospel writer, says it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, i.e. Jesus, and dwelled among us, camped out with us. Or when Jesus is challenged about what's the great commandment, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. It isn't a what statement, it's a who statement. And then Paul, and, and there are dozens of references like this, but Paul says this to the church at Philippi, don't do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves. So th this is all about the who. Way before, way before Dr. Seuss wrote or gave us uh, Horton Hears a Who. How many of you remember that? You remember that a little bit? Way before that we had this. This is the, this is the who book. It's, it's about who God is, who we are, what He calls us to be, that's the heart of it. Think about the people in your life, the who's in your life, that have shaped how you see the world. One of my favorite questions is, who in your early years left their fingerprints on your soul in a good way? And so now it's sort of a lens through which you see your world. It's part of that framework through which you see your world. I asked this question in Washington, D.C. some years ago. I'm in a little group with some guys. They're mostly older than I am, and they've served in various administrations. And if I said a couple of names, you would know who they were. And, uh, you know, I'm, when I'm in that context, I'm way out of my element because I'm a kid brought up in East Oakland. I wasn't raised with a lot of money or stuff like that. So it just shows God has a great sense of humor, and so I'm there, you know. And, um, but I asked this question one time, who in your early years shaped the way you see your world? Who left their fingerprints on your soul? And all four guys in the room said, my grandmother. My grandmother. Grandmothers and grandkids have this unique kind of connection. Um, I'm watching March Madness, right? And, I, and I'm watching these coaches on the sidelines. And basketball makes me crazy. Football's better for me because basketball, you can, you can lose it in the last six-tenths of a second or win it, as the case may be. And, you know, I just, I watch that and my hair falls out. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm watching these guys pace the sidelines and they're encouraging their young players. And these are, you know, these are 18 or 19-year-old young men who are like, trees in the forest, and they're shooting and dunking and all this crazy stuff. Somebody has said it well that coaches in our culture today are the tribal chieftains of our culture. 
They're not dad. They're not uncle. They're not elder brother. They're not teacher. But they're parts of all of those. And they shape in a malleable stage in a young man or young woman's life. They shape how they see the world and how to deal with real life. My first point, I only have two points this morning. The first one is this. We are molded by people we trust. We're molded by people we trust. You pay attention to people you trust. You want to hear their thoughts on things. You, you want their input. Some years ago, I went to a men's retreat, or did a men's retreat, at a church in Kansas City, Missouri. The person who coordinated was an old friend of mine who had been a backfield high school football coach in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, when I was that 24-year-old pastor. And he was like 14 or 15 years older than I, so now he's in his late 80s. But he was like 40 when I was 26, so he was like on a downhill slide. Because when you're in your 20s, you know, 40-year-old, they're just gone. You know, they don't have much life left, and it's over. And, uh, but he would come after two-a-day drills and hang out with me, and we'd do stuff together. And we ended up going on lots of Mission to Mexico trips together with university students and became great friends. So now he's this associate pastor. At this time, he was in his early 80s at this church in Kansas City, and he structures the men's retreat around small groups, and it's defined by NFL football teams. So we're at tables in a place like this, and I'm, I'm at the Philadelphia Eagles table. And the question was asked, who left their fingerprints on your soul when you were growing up? And um, there's a guy at our table who said, I grew up on the border of Canada in Minnesota, my father was a railroader, and we lived in sort of a cabin that had a, a stove in the kitchen that was the central heating, and my dad had to be at work at 5.30 every morning, and my mom would get up and fix him breakfast, and she'd, she would stoke the, the wood into the stove until it started heating up, then she'd open the door to my brother and I were upstairs in the bedroom, and the heat would start coming up the stairs. We're snuggled down under a, a coverlet or a quilt or something up there, and the heat would come up, and she'd start cooking breakfast. It'd be flapjacks and eggs and sausage and bacon, and, you know, some of you are salivating even as I speak, and, and hot coffee. And then she'd, she would feed her husband. She'd put it on the table, and while he ate, she would sit. He was not a believer. She was. She would sit and read Scripture to him out loud. And he said she had a strong voice, and so my earliest memories... Every morning, there's this warm air coming up the stairs up in northern Minnesota, and, it, and it, smelled, it smelled like bacon, and my mom's voice was reading Scripture. It was, it was Scripture that smelled like bacon. And <laughs> I'm thinking if all the Scripture smelled like bacon, we'd memorize the whole Bible. You know, that's how it is. This idea that people shape our lives especially as we're young. I have a friend who works with young people, and he calls it the, the 418 window, those years of 4 to 18 when we make decisions for, for Jesus most often when we're young. The who in your life can make all the difference. And Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's two weeks out like we are. And two weeks out, he goes through a town. If, if I could draw an imaginary map here of Palestine, this is the Mediterranean Sea ocean or sea over here. And up here in the north, you have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. And just before you get to the Dead Sea, 
you come to a town called Jericho. It's 800 feet below sea level. And then you take a 45 and head a little to the southwest. But as you go to the southwest, you go up in elevation. Because Jerusalem sits at about, I think, 2,500 feet, something like that. And you're 800 feet below sea level. So in 17 miles, Jesus, over the next few days, is going to go through Jericho. And it'll take him the better part of a day, or maybe longer, to go to Jerusalem. And he'll get to Jerusalem next week, Palm Sunday. That's when he, he, he gets there a couple days before. But this week, right now, he's going through Jericho. And he meets several who's. You know, there's this blind guy named Bartimaeus screaming beside the road, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so he stops and calls him to him, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And, you know, he's blind, so we could start there. You know, let's fix that. And then some moms, I think they're moms, doesn't say that. It says some people brought little babies to him and wanted him to bless them. And the disciples are trying to keep him away because women and children in that culture were chattel property. They didn't count. But Jesus is saying, no, no, let the babies come to me because this is what the kingdom looks like. Unless, you, unless you're dependent like this, you don't get in. And then he keeps on coming through the town, and here's a little short guy up a tree out on a limb. He's the ripoff artist of town. His name's Zacchaeus. And Jesus calls him down out of the tree, and he, and he goes to his house, changes Zacchaeus' whole life. And then one of the mothers of the disciples, James and John, comes to Jesus. Good Jewish mom. She's trying to negotiate a place at the table for her boys. And she's saying, you know, they're good boys. I can hear her saying it. If you put the one here on the right and the one on the, it'll be good. And so he has all of these who connections coming through Jericho. And then, you, then he goes to, goes to Jerusalem. And that next week between Palm Sunday and Easter is the crucible. All kinds of things happen there. But it's interesting, when he gets to that part, when he gets to Jerusalem next week, it's interesting what happens because in the Gospels, the story that Jesus invites us to, to discover him, the, there really isn't that much about Jesus in the whole of the Bible, relatively speaking. That much. Out of the whole Bible, those are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of those Gospels, one-third of all that is written about Jesus have to do with the last eight weeks of his life. And in John, there are 21 chapters in John, the last 10 are about the last eight weeks of his life. And I'm saying, why, why, would, why would they pay attention out of 33 years plus a little, why would they pay attention so much to the last eight weeks? Well, if you know, if you know you're going to die, I think, you're going you're gonna to say your stuff. You're going to distill all this stuff. You're going to distill it to the important things. So when you read John, John 15 and following, there are these focused things, and, and one of them is this, John 15, 12 through 15, it's in your bulletin. My command is this, love each other. Not just love each other any old way, love each other as I have loved you. I think that implies I've gone out of my way here to love you. I've come to places where you're hiding behind all of your successes and guilts and I tag you and say you're it and I, you know, I believe he means it, that sort of thing. Love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life 
for one's friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. He's commanded him to love each other. He said, you do that, we're in it together. He, he doesn't tell them to go love the world. He says, love each other. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. You're a friend because you know my father's stuff. I've told you my father's stuff. No longer servants, now you're friends. There's some powerful words in Scripture, like this one, repentance. Repentance is a, is a dramatic word. I'm going this way, and I turn 180 degrees and go that way. Or maybe um, submission. Some of us say, ooh, I don't like that word. But submission is not slavery. Submission is a voluntary sending of myself under, my serving of you. That's a good, strong word. It's a, I'm in control when I'm submitted. Sounds crazy. But when I submit, I am most in control of my life in a very real way. Kindness. Some people say, well, that's a mushy word. But Romans 2, 4 says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. When we look at the cross, you say, that's a horrific thing. Well, it's horrific, but it's the kindest thing God ever did for me. Or grace. Or the word sufficient. I talked about that last year when I was here. Or sacrifice. But here's a strong word. Friend. There's some powerful designations for Jesus in Scripture. Savior, Redeemer, Judge, Creator, King, Lamb of God, Lion of Judah, the I Ams. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the beginning. I am. Those are strong designations. But the one that comes at the front end of those for me is friend. He models, he models what it's like to be a friend so they can discover that he's King and Creator and Redeemer and I am. He comes in the door with friendship. We, we have lots of relational connections in our lives. We have siblings and parents and spouses and partners and co-workers and colleagues and fellow teachers and all of that, but how about friend? Some studies were done in the Second World War about why people fought. And no, you know, you don't, you don't go to war with your friends in the sense of against them, you go to war with them. And the 82nd, 101st Airborne had a unique policy in the Second World War. If you were just regular army and were wounded, you would be sent back to England or to some field hospital till you got better. And then they put you back where they needed you in any army unit anywhere. But if you were airborne, they put you back in the unit that you had trained with, and they found that the emotional collapse was far less, for example, with guys who were in airborne units than it was in regular army, just by virtue of that. Because when you ask the persons, why are you fighting? What are you willing to die for? Jesus quoted the phrase, you know, this is what characterizes friendship. Barely for a friend will you be willing to die. But, but most of the guys would say, it, it isn't about flag and country. I'm, you know, I'm good with that, but the reason I'm here is if I'm going to die, I'm going to die with my friends. I've got their backs, if you will. That idea is powerful. We had this little church that started with 15 folks in Illinois back in the mid-60s, and then it started growing, and we got to several hundred, and we would have Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night services back in the day, and in a Sunday night service, there were a couple of hundred folks, and 
we used to say, do you have any song requests or any prayer? You know, it was, a, it was just like this. I could say that here, and there's, it's about right number, and we could get that. And I said, have any prayer requests? There was a young man sitting in the second row, about where that young man is sitting, right over there. And he just, he just raised his hand and said, I'd like to pray for Paul Todd. Now, the young man sitting in the row was Jim White. He was 25 years old, and Paul Todd was 40 years his senior. He was 65 years old and had been a tank commander under George Patton in the Second World War. He had fought all the way from North Africa up through Italy into France, into Germany, and finally in the fourth year of the war was blown out of his tank, spent 13 months in a hospital, had emphysema, shrapnel in him, all kinds of things. But they had met in a men's breakfast. And uh, I said, well, is, is Paul in the hospital, Jim? He said, no, I don't think so. I said, well, is he struggling physically at home? Is he? he said, no, I, I don't think so. I said, well, emotionally, as he started, because he had a hard time talking about the war without weeping. And Jim said, no, I don't, I don't think so. And I'm having this conversation in front of 200 people. Finally, I said, Jim, why do you want to pray for him? And he just grinned at me and said, well, I just like him. <laughs> well, that throws pastors off. You got to, you know, you, you got to be dying of something. You can't just be praying for people you like. What would happen if we prayed for people we liked? Here is the creator of the universe who looks at us and says, we're friends. We're together. I mean, that's like overwhelming. In D.C., on Capitol Hill, when you call for an appointment with a congressman or a senator, they will always ask this question, who are you with? Because there are 35,000 registered lobbyists on Capitol Hill for everything from pickle companies to who knows what. And that's fine. That's the American way. That's great. But they would say to me, who are you with? What company? And I would say, well, I, I'm really not. I'm, I'm just a friend of the congressman. And they'd say, oh, okay. See, we think that if we have CEO on the business card and we give it to somebody, that should get us in. I'm not saying you feel that way, but I'm saying that's, that's a common understanding. But I would submit to you that friend gets you in way faster than that. Uh, I was at an ambassador's breakfast. There was a group of ambassadors and some business leaders and former political guys, and they meet on Tuesday mornings. And usually somebody comes and will give a little two-minute talk, not somebody within the group. And it isn't because they're theologians. They're just on this journey with Jesus. And so they just pick a phrase, and they'll put it out there, and we'll talk about that. Well, the person who was supposed to do it didn't show up, and so I gave the little thought that morning just on the spur of the moment, and I was sort of whining I was saying, you know, the trouble with this town is you put your credentials on the table and you can get trumped just like that. Somebody will have more education, more friends, more connections, more money, come from better schools. They just, uh, and a person in the room who's a former member of a previous administration, previous president's cabinet said, Dick, I, I really, I like your thought. It's great. I just have one caveat. I just have one observation. And that is if you put your credentials on the table and they say, friend, Everybody wins. That's the great leveler of the playing field when you say friend. At that same breakfast was a former ambassador from a large Latin American country. I'll call him Pablo. He was elegant. He had a PhD in comparative law from Cambridge and brilliant guy. I used to like to sit next to him just to see if it would rub off. It never happened. <laughs> but uh, but he, he sp spoke with a deep Spanish accented voice like this. He'd say, hello, Dick. And I'd say, hello, Pablo. Yeah. 
And he was sitting there, and because we're friends, when, when you're friends, it's a safe place to be. You can say what you want to say when you're friends. And so he said one morning in front of these 20 guys, you know, I have a confession to make. He said, uh, I, I do not believe in another life after this one. You say, well, what kind of a group is that? Well, it's a group of friends. They're different places on their journey. When Jesus in John 1 meets John the Baptist, John the Baptist, you can read this in John 1, 35 and following. John the Baptist has a couple of guys with him, and he says, look, the Lamb of God. And his two guys start following Jesus. You remember this story? Well, if I'm trying to get my group together, that's not good that my guys would follow, unless I want my guys to follow him. And Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? And I think he's God, so he should know what they want. But they, they don't ask him a philosophical or scientific or theological question. They just say to him, where are you staying? And he doesn't tell them. All he says is, come and you'll see. I think he says that to all of us. We say, Jesus, where are you going? He says, come, you'll see. Who are you? Well, you'll discover as you come. You know, what, what amazes me about that little exchange is he doesn't say, if you can guess who I am, then you can be in my group. Every person sitting here is at a different place on his or her journey in discovering Jesus every day, more about who he is and how he works and all of that. We just are. And so Paulo, what he says is, I do not believe in another life after this one. He said, I, I, would, I would like to believe, but right now today, I don't believe. He said, but I was thinking, what would I miss if I were to die about this life? What would I miss? He said, the first thing that comes to my mind is I would miss coming on Tuesday morning to be with these men, with you men, who love each other and love me and talk about Jesus. Here is the Jesus who comes along and says, here's the deal. I want you to love each other. If you do that, we're friends, so I won't call you servants anymore because I tell my friends my father's stuff. Our family things, I'm telling you. That's the point of 33 years on the planet because when you come to grips with that and who I am, then we can go to my father's house. Point two is this. When we are friends to people, we look like Jesus. When we are friends to people, we look like Jesus. You say, what's the thing that got Jesus crucified? Well, you say it's part of the plan. It's part of God's plan of reconciliation of the whole planet to himself. And so that's true. But what's the mechanism that got him crucified? Well, the mechanism that got him crucified is that he was friends with the wrong people. According to the religious leaders who were specialists in judging people's motives and all that kind of stuff, apparently, they... They said, these guys are sinners, and he's eating with sinners. And they had a theology that if you hung out with sinners, that you got tainted because it was a culture that talked about cleanness and uncleanness, about purification rituals and so forth. So if you hang with the wrong people, you get tainted. And it's true. You, that can happen. But with Jesus, what they didn't get is when he hung with those people, he didn't get tainted. They got clean. That's how that worked. 
And when I'm following Jesus, is it possible that when we become friends, even though I'm, you know, I'm just like they are in the terms of a sinner saved by grace, is it possible? And I just thought of this, so don't take this to the bank. I'm just talking here. Is it possible that when we follow Jesus and he's, he's cleaned us up, if you will, or again continues to clean us up, that when we become friends, somehow that slops over, that something of that happens? This is how it says it in Matthew eleven nineteen. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's how they characterized him. When I first went to D.C., I, I got invited by the chaplain of the Senate, who had become a friend, to come to the Senate dining room. And again, I'm a kid from East Oakland, California, so I'm not sort of used to that. And I went and sat with him over lunch, and it, I was trying not to gawk, because Henry Kissinger was over in the corner, former Secretary of State for Richard Nixon and these various people. And, and I just said to the chaplain, Richard Halverson, who in the church world was Mr. Presbyterian, he had written books. He had been chairman of the Board of World Vision. He had a big reputation, and I was n nobody. And I said, how did, you, how did you learn to work with senators? How do you do that? And he said, well, my first pastorate was in a place called Coalinga, California. Anybody know where Coalinga, California is? I mean, you got to know where Coalinga is. I mean, it's, it's out there. It's not like on I-5 or anything. It's, it's out there. And he said it was a church with mostly women in it who wanted me, quote, to get their husbands saved, end quote. But none of the guys were there. And so I had to go find them. And they were wildcat oil riggers. They were bankers. They were car salesmen. And over time, many of them started following Jesus. But I found out two things about working with businessmen, and that is you have to go where they are, and you have to respect their time, because time is money. And he said, so when I came to the Senate, I made a decision that I would meet a man anywhere, anytime, at his convenience, his convenience under any circumstance, with no agenda except his. And I said, yeah, but you've got an agenda. You want that guy to come to Jesus. You want him to follow Jesus. And he said, oh, no, Dick. That's not my agenda. That's my life. The difference if you befriend me, the difference between whether Jesus is your agenda or your life is the difference of whether I feel like a target or a friend. It's not about just some words that you say or some words I need to say. It's about how does his life transmit through you to me in some, in some way. How does, that, how does that impact me? I have a friend, Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament scholar. Who, he says, life is a wilderness. You're out there wandering around trying to do the best. You, you've never been there. You've never done it before. So you're out there wandering around. And here I am. I'm pagan foth. You know, I'm out here wandering around trying to do the best I can, trying to be a good man, good husband, good father. And you, you're a Jesus follower. You're following Jesus to the Father's house. And you don't get it all, but you get more than I get. And, and you understand. And you befriend me. And we start hanging out or going to Starbucks or hunting or fishing or playing chess or whatever we're doing. And, and when, you, when you do that, when you befriend me, I automatically start following Jesus. 
oh, I don't know about him. I mean, I don't know stuff, but, I, but I'm with you. And I start saying, so why do you think that way about life? Or why do you treat your family like that? Or how come, how come money has that place? Or you see money in a different way. You're, you seem to be a generous spirit. Where does that come from? And I start asking you, and over time, if I follow him, Jesus leads me to the cross and says, okay, because he starts with my humanity. When he comes to Bethlehem, he says, let me show you what a perfect human being looks like. And then he takes me to the cross and says, now about your issues. So he doesn't start with my issues. He starts with my person, and he walks me to the cross, if you will. And part of that comes when you befriend me. That happens. My... Uh, and so, so Jesus comes along, and it says he was a friend of sinners, and essentially he's saying, I'm going away. Uh, I'd like you to do that. Why don't, why don't you do that now? I shared this thought years ago at a church on the East Coast, and afterwards a young 30-ish woman came up to me, and she was weeping. And she said, I've never heard anything like this in this church in my whole life. And of course, you've heard it a lot here. But she said, I've never heard anything. She said, are you telling me that it's okay to be a friend with a sinner? And all of us are sinners, only saved by grace. Are you saying that Jesus says it's okay? And I said, no. I'm saying he insists on it. Because if I'm not a friend with him, who's, how, how do you hear? How, how are you going to know how that works? And like, like Stan was saying, you know, I needed to be a little stronger before I went back to the original ones. But the fact is that that's how the message gets out. My father-in-law, Roy Blakely, went to Jesus about 20 years ago. And at his memorial service, an architect, friend of his, said Roy Blakely was like an elephant. He would come up and he'd stand next to you. And then he'd just start leaning slightly to the right. <laughs> and you thought you were going that way, but pretty soon you looked up and you were going that way. And you really didn't know what had happened. It just, it just happened. And they asked him for an article in the Modesto Bee newspaper in California. They said, what would be Roy's definition of discipleship? Discipleship is a church word. You don't hear that on Capitol Hill, right? And he said, Roy's definition of discipleship is simply this. Make a friend, take him with you. Make a friend, take him with you. So my question to you today, my statement is, who makes more difference than what? Who makes the difference? The question is, who made the difference for you? And the other question is, who are you the difference for? Not everyone can play basketball for the Oregon State Beavers or for the Oregon Ducks. Not everyone can play baseball at George Fox. Not everybody can play sports at Horizon Christian School. Not just anyone can get a PhD in engineering or be a stellar first grade teacher or a tremendous cabinet maker or a graphic artist or an IT specialist. Not everyone can be a great salesperson or be great with middle schoolers or nursery kids. You know, that would just take me over the edge. Not everyone can do that. Not just anyone can hit high notes or play a mean guitar or have perfect pitch, but anyone, everyone, can be a friend. And when that happens, Easter might be just around the corner.